Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode three of a brand new series of Soho Bites, a Soho on screen podcast. My name is Jingan Young. I'm a writer and researcher into the depiction of Soho, the beating heart of cosmopolitan bohemian London in British films. In 1907, journalist George Robert Sims wrote that Soho has two or three streets which are chiefly inhabited by criminals. In it are clubs frequented by men who are violent and lawless and a constant source of anxiety and trouble. He went on to say, the gambling dens of Soho are among the most difficult with which the authorities have to deal, many of them being carried on at the back of quite respectable looking shops. Of course this wasn't the beginning of crime in Soho, and if George Sims had been around in 1641, he might well have reported upon the case of Anna Clerk, a lewd woman who was arrested for breaching the peace when she threatened to set fire to the houses in Soho. Although Soho is clearly not unique in attracting those who choose to live on the wrong side of the law, the history of crime in this relatively small area is a long and colourful one and has inspired books, music, films, and this week, an episode of the Soho Bites podcast. In a few moments, we'll be heading down to Soho Square with a Soho crime expert to hear about the gangs that ran Soho for much of the last century. In the second half of the show, we'll be joined by the hardest working man in podcasting, Adam Roach to talk about two of Alfred Hitchcock's most famed offerings. And please stick around to the end of the show to hear details of an upcoming festival of Soho films being held at the UK's oldest cinema. Throughout the 20th century, generations of criminal gangs fought for control of the various vice rackets, such as clip joints, gambling dens and brothels that operated in Soho. But it was perhaps during the war and during the immediate post-war period that those infamous Soho gang leaders like Jack Spot, Bernie Silver, the Messina brothers and Billy Hill emerged and have since been mythologized in the public imagination. The social and sexual dislocations of the war and the problems of post-war reconstruction refocus public attention on Soho as the home of spivs and violent black market racketeers. Soho's identity in the cultural sphere as one of sexual transgression had very much been enlarged by cinema, 
particularly by the crime or spiv cycle of films which proved popular during the war, films such as Brighton Rock and Noose. Aidan McManus from Flipside London Tours is an accredited London tour guide and runs several theme tours of locations around our great city. One of them in particular is of special interest to us here at Soho Bites, a tour of Gangland Soho. We met up with Aidan a few weeks ago in Soho Square for our own private tour. I'm Aidan McManus, I'm a walking tour guide that does tours in Soho. Do a gangland Soho ones, I'm interested in all the gangster history of Soho and all, all the dodginess because this was the centre of dodginess in London for a good hundred years I suppose. Pre-First World War you had uh, these racecourse gangs because there wasn't any betting shops then and betting off course was illegal. So everywhere in London there were street bookmakers that you could have a bet on. This Peaky Blinders, nonsense television programme. Betting shops in abandoned houses, really, fuck off, it's not the sting. It's absolute nonsense. They wouldn't do that because you'd get raided every 10 minutes and everything's sitting there, you know, you can't, if you're a street bookmaker you'd chuck the slips away and say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. So it, that's all rubbish, but Billy Kimber, he was from Birmingham, uh, but he was the leader of the Elephant and Castle mob, and uh, so there was them, and then you had the Sabinis, who were from Clerkenwell. This is just after the, set, uh, the First World War, uh, so they're Italians, but they're not really Italians, you know, they're half Irish, I don't think any of them spoke Italian, do you know what I mean? But they were all based in Clerkenwell, so they started doing this race course stuff as well. So they're controlling street bookmaking. Thrift Street outside Bar Italia was the big Italian bit. The Sabinis used to, their headquarters in Soho was the Admiral Duncan, which is, you know, a bit changed now, isn't it? But, you know, that's where they used to hang out. That was their headquarters. They were one of the first to do the fruit machine rackets. Darby and Harry Boy were the main two. And the other brothers, I think it was four or five other brothers, and they were mainly bookmakers. So they worked on race courses. They were the muscle, Derby and uh, and Harry boy. So they used to charge bookies for pitches. If they didn't pay up, then they'd wreck their stands. You had to, if you took the pitch off them, you had to give them a percentage of your winnings. And so the Brummagens and the Sabinis went to war with each other, which is what Peaky Blinders is trying to depict very badly, in my opinion. Downton Abbey with guns. Uh, anyway, don't, don't start me off. All right, so... Uh, this was all getting in the papers, and in the end, they came to an agreement, and the Brummagens got all the northern race courses, and uh, the Sabinis and their lot got the southern ones. Then you had Greyhound Racing comes out in the 30s, that becomes huge. So there's another area of bookmaking where you don't even have to get on a train and go out to the countryside. And they were the, the big gang in Soho in the 20s and 30s. Put up your hands and so the Second World War, the Sabinis got interned as enemy aliens. They didn't speak Italian, they'd never been to Italy. Uh, Darby's son died in the RAF. All their kids were in the forces during the Second World War. So they interned them. Where did they inter them? Ascot Racecourse. Pretty ironic. They built a prisoner of war camp on Ascot Racecourse, and that's where all the Italians, the Sabinis, spent most of the Second World War. By the time they come out, they were sort of yesterday's men, they retired at Brighton. Brighton Rock is based on their activities, a bit more realistic in my view than Peaky Blinders. Colleone 
in Brighton Rock is based on Derby Sabini, who retired to Brighton. Brighton was as bent as Soho. So this this is where all the gangsters went to retire. The police were as bent as here. So you could make money and it's an hour away on the train. Then Billy Hill and Jack Spot. Jack Spot was a Jewish gangster from the East End. Billy Hill was from Camden. He teamed up with Jack Spot. Uh, he, he did a couple of really big robberies. Spot, he, he, there was an airport Heathrow in 1948, a robbery that went wrong, and that was sort of the start of the end for Spot because there's stories that he planned it, but it all went completely wrong. A lot of people got went to prison for a long time. But Billy Hill was doing things like East Castle Street. There's uh, 1952, there was a robbery. They robbed a mail van in East, which no one's ever heard of this robbery, right? They robbed a mail van, got 287,000 pound in used notes. Today, that's worth seven, eight million. So, and no one got caught. They never got any of the money back. And he did another bullion robbery in Jockey's Fields in Fearballs Road that came to about three million in today's money. So then he retired. Albert Dimes used to be a Sabini, and then when the Sabinis left the picture, he sort of took over, especially the street bookmaking thing. So he took over that, and he was in with Billy Hill, and they basically were edging Spot out. So Spot and uh, Dimes had a fight outside Bar Italia in 1955, the fight that never was. Spot was losing credibility, all his men were going over to Billy Hill, but he was still nominally in charge of the, everything to do with racing in Soho. So Dimes sent him a message saying, uh, yeah, I want to talk to you. He's meant to be Dimes' boss, so this is a big fuck you to Jack Spot. So Dimes was sitting on his car outside Bar Italia and um, Spot walks over for where Ronnie Scott's is now and uh, pulls a knife out on him and says, I heard you want to have a word with me. And Dimes got up and ran. So if he had any brain spot, he would have put the knife back in his pocket, walked off. The whole street saw Dimes run away. So his credibility's back up, but the idiot chases him. Dimes runs in, there's a shop, it's called Balan Society on the corner of the street now. That was the Continental Fruit Stores. Dimes runs in there, so Spot goes in there and starts stabbing him up. So the woman who runs the shop picks up, remember those big metal things they used to weigh the fruit in, and she bashes Spot round the head with it, thinking, you know, that he's going to kill that man. So Dimes gets the knife off him and starts doing him. So the two of them cut each other to bits. So the police find out about this, they nick them both, but, you know, there's a million people standing in the street, nobody saw anything. Spot had a reputation as being a bit of a grass. He'd never really been to prison, which was suspicious. They managed to get separate trials. So Spot went first, and Spot, he testified against someone as well, which is not done. You do it yourself, you sort it all out, no, 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 I fell over, all that sort of stuff, and then you'd carve him up yourself later on. Yeah, that's how it works. You didn't bring the police in. So he named Dimes as his attacker. He's claiming self-defense Spot. Then all of a sudden this vicar turns up in the box, the Reverend Basil Andrews of Kensal Green. And uh, he's looking a bit shabby, but he's a vicar. And uh, he's, oh yes, I was, I was in Soho that day and I walked past, I saw, I saw this gentleman being attacked by another gentleman and oh, it's a horrible scene. And uh, this gentleman had to defend himself uh, under great duress. And you know, he's, he's a posh vicar. And all of a sudden the jury are all sitting up and taking notice and everything, so not guilty. 
There was this journalist called uh, Duncan Webb, very strange man, and he was basically Billy Hill's pet journalist. Uh, so Duncan Webb thinks, what's going on here? Something going on here. So he done a bit of digging, and they found out that this vicar was a degenerate gambler that had £3,000 worth of gambling debts, which Spot paid and paid him a grand on the top to testify. He was a real vicar, but he was a demon gambler vicar that had a, was leading a double life. Duncan Webb exposes all this. So Dimes never got put on trial because he wouldn't get a fair trial. This was all in the papers. So his case was dismissed. So this famously becomes the fight that never was. This was the end of Spot. Not long after this, Frankie Fraser and Alf Warren, who's uh, Frank Warren's uncle, you know, the boxing promoter, they were all dodgy bastards. They chopped Spot to bits with razors in Edgware Road. <laughs> Messinas were the pimps, you know, they basically living off women, professional boyfriends and getting them out working. But you had uh, Bernie Silva, who's a nice young Jewish boy from the East End. His main man was Mifsud, who was an ex-Maltese copper, so he was his sort of enforcer. He was quite clever, Silva. From what I've heard, he gave... Yeah, everyone was always fighting. They were all jealous of each other. So all his little sort of, I don't know, you could cartel maybe is not the correct word, but he had a little group of them and he gave everyone shares in each other's strip clubs so to keep down on the jealousy so if they're making a load of money at the end of the week they they put money in a pot and they had a divvy up so everyone got money out of everyone else's thing and it kept the peace for years but then there's always nutters someone got the ump about something so there was fire bombings and stuff like that bernie silver and all that lot and jimmy humphreys they're businessmen but they're skirting the law you telling me down in the city these people ain't skirting the law yeah they're doing exactly the same thing but they won't get nicked this lot will the biggest gang in Soho in the 50s and 60s and most of the 70s was the police. Bernie's motto was get them while they're young and he wasn't talking about women, he's talking about coppers. And when the first minute they started on the beat, he'd be slipping them money. Beat coppers in Soho were making 60 quid a week and you know their wages are probably a fiver or a tenner at the most and that was on the ship week and it used to go right to the top the head of the vice squad in the 60s and 70s he was driving sports cars they were all at it and coppers actually went to prison for a change that's how blatant it was three of them moody drury and wally virgo all got 10 12 years for corruption my theory is Westminster Council that killed it because in the 80s when it went Tory because Westminster were Maggie's flagship council they took the licensing off the police because the police licensed clubs drinking clubs and these sex shops as well so the story is you paid 100 quid a week to run a sex shop and to be honest with you it got so bad in the early 80s that it was a bit much all that porn thing it was nearly every shop and they were the Starbucks of their day because every time a lease came up, they'd pay twice as much as your mum and pop Jewish deli or whatever, which there was still a few of those knocking around in the 70s, because Berwick Street was really Jewish, 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s. And all of these little businesses all got swallowed up by the porn industry. So they were just as bad as Starbucks, really. And there was millions of them. And it's just, but, you know, you didn't have any pink cowboy hat hen nights roaming around pissed out their heads in those days they wouldn't have come down here yeah it did the thing with those days is it kept all the straight people out ada mcmanus there on the gangs that ran soho before the pink-hatted hen parties moved in 
Many thanks to Aiden for sharing his encyclopedic knowledge of Soho gangland history with us. Aiden has more tours in Soho and other locations across London, and there'll be details of where to find him at the end of this program. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. We'll now be stepping outside the sacred borders of Soho to talk about two films separated by 45 years, but connected by their themes, locations, and of course, their director, Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock grew up in the East End of London and began his film career designing title cards for silent films before moving to Gainsborough Studios to work as an assistant director under the nurturing eye of Michael Balcom. The achievement of Hitchcock's 30 years in Hollywood are well known, but recently there's been a growing interest in the earlier part of his career in Britain, a period where he developed and perfected his craft. Some of the devices that became Hitchcock trademarks the finale set in an iconic location, the Hitchcock cameo, the Hitchcock blonde, had their first outings in these earlier inventive offerings, sublime films like The 39 Steps, Blackmail, The Lady Vanishes, and Sabotage. After decades in Hollywood, Hitchcock finally returned to London in 1972 to make his penultimate film, Frenzy, and it's that film, along with the silent classic, The Lodger, from 1927, that we're discussing today. I sent my producer Dom to meet our guest for this episode, the podcaster Adam Roach. Amongst Adam's many podcasting achievements is a 20-hour-long biographical masterpiece called The Adventures of Alfred Hitchcock, in which Adam tells the story of Hitch's life from birth to death and every film in between in meticulous detail. If anyone is qualified to talk about these two Hitchcock films, it's Adam Roach. This is a slightly different Soho Bites podcast today because, uh, well, for a start, I'm not Jingen Young. She can't be here today. My name is Dom DeLaghi. I'm the producer of Soho Bites. And we're also on location. It sounds a bit different uh, from normal. We normally do these film chats in the studio. You might be able to hear in the background uh, hustle and bustle. It's because we're by the river in London's glamorous Southwark district. And we're also discussing two films today. We normally just discuss one. And I'm discussing those two films with my special guest. And my special guest is... Adam Roach. I'm the host and producer and narrator of The Secret History of Hollywood and Attaboy Clarence podcasts and the Talking Pictures TV podcast. And specifically, you did a very long series about the director of the two films we're talking about. Who is this director and what are the films, Adam Roach? It's Anthony Newley. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's Alfred Hitchcock, of course. And the films we're discussing are 1927's The Lodger and 1972's Frenzy, hopefully. We try to make these films in this podcast uh, Soho films. We do stretch the definition sometimes. Um, I think it's worth saying straight off the bat that The Lodger of 1927 isn't really a Soho film at all, but it is very linked to... Frenzy, which is sort of a Soho film. It's basically a Covent Garden film, which is very close, and there are scenes in Soho 
and it's about Hitchcock and it's a brilliant film so uh, that's why we're allowed to talk about it. So tell me about The Lodger, set The Lodger up for us and tell me the, about the significance of the film to Hitchcock's career and to cinema in general at the time. Well, The Lodger, first of all the story from a book by Marie Belloc Lowndes. It's a thinly veiled take on the Jack the Ripper story. Uh, it tells the tale of a mysterious lodger who turns up to a boarding house in the middle of the night uh, during a spate of serial killings that are happening in London. Uh, the killer seems to be targeting blonde girls. He's very mysterious. And as the film goes on, the landlady, this is Bunce. I'm not sure what the landlady's called. Uh, played by... Um Joey off of bread, if you look very closely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mrs. Bunce soon comes to realise through a series of contrivances and clues that her new lodger may be the serial killer that's haunting London streets at the moment, which is made all the more difficult by the fact that Daisy, her stepdaughter, has just arrived home and she's blonde. So the, the whole film basically plays on that story. It's, it's is he mm. or isn't he? And, what, and what's going to happen. So the film was a gigantic hit. Yeah, and stands up to this day. It's one of the most watchable silent films, I would say, for, for modern sensibilities. It's, it's the only silent film I've ever put on, apart from some Laurel and Hardy shorts, where my children of all ages have walked past and been absolutely glued to the action straight away. But in terms of what it did for Hitchcock's career, he was, at the time, slightly despondent by the fact that he couldn't actually get any of his films released even though he'd been working across the continent at great expense to his producers but due to some disagreements he'd had with another director at the studio Graham Cutts and the distributor who was basically Graham Cutts friend he couldn't actually get some of his melodramas released well when The Lodger came along it was undeniably such a masterpiece that he did very wisely got some critics on side went to some private screenings with it and the buzz created by those screenings was so big that the studio had no option but to release the film and it was an incredible hit and really paved the way for the rest of his career. What made it stand out so much from films around at the time, British films around at the time? Well, British films at the time were very static. They were generally just drawing room dramas or uh, romantic films that were very much pulled back from the action. There was no real technique in them at the time not consistently anyway I mean there were obviously skills going on but so what Hitchcock had done was um, he'd taken the opportunity to study German techniques that were happening in Berlin at the Weimar studios under people like Robert Wiener and he would observe what was happening and he'd get to know the directors and he would ask them you know why were they chaining cameras to the ceiling and why were they mounting cameras on bicycles and and they had this theory that film should be liberated from just you know it's one thing to film a stage play it's quite another thing to bring the camera into the action so those are the techniques that Hitchcock really adopted and began to bring into his work and the lodger is probably the explosion of that Hitchcock went to Germany he learned these techniques he brought them back gradually brought them in but with the lodger he really went to town you have montage you have techniques like the glass ceiling which is incredibly inventive. You want to explain this scene because this is um, quite a famous scene for the lodger isn't it? People downstairs start to suspect that the chap upstairs is a bit shifty. Yeah, so they're, they're wondering why he's pacing around the floor. He seems nervous about something and they glance up at the ceiling and Hitchcock dissolves 
to a glass ceiling and you can see the lodger pacing around on top of the camera as it were um, I mean, no one in British cinema was doing anything like that at the time so it just it just leapt out the film leapt out it was an explosion of creativity technique and mass market appeal in one go English audiences British audiences just weren't getting the opportunity to see films that inventive and all of a sudden Hitchcock said you know the language of filmmaking isn't what being employed in, in Britain at the time we can change that and it was a staggering success and in the process he basically wrote the language of film because he took those techniques then onto America Hitchcock really was the man who bridged the gap between true film technique and mass market appeal and it also had it was the first film that included a Hitchcock cameo was it I believe so. Okay, I'm going to go with you on that one. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not big on the Hitchcock cameos, I must be honest. You know, it's the only thing I know about. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think the first time the Hitchcock blonde mm. is a thing. Is that the case? I think if you can say that, definitely. I mean, there are... I think officially the first time the Hitchcock blonde becomes the main focus of the story is probably blackmail. How old is he at this stage? 28, 27, 28, thereabouts. Oh, young man. Mm, yeah, young man. Recently married or soon to be yeah, married? Yeah, had or? been married for a year or two, I think, yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe less than a year. Married to Alma Revel, mm. and it was the early days of what ended up being an enormously creative partnership throughout their lives. Do you have any clear sense of how much Alma contributed to the creation of The Lodger? I mean, was, was her creative role established yet in their partnership? Alma Revel was very much the famous one of the two at the time. I mean, Hitchcock had been directing films, but she was the name, basically. He was so dazzled by her when they first met. She was an editor. She was a real rising star in British cinema. So, I mean, although today we... We say Alfred Hitchcock and Alma Revel. Back in those days, it would have been very much Alma Revel is married to a, a guy called Alfred Hitchcock. I think very much he tried to keep her name alongside his. Always credited her for the films. Even when he didn't get credit for writing, she always did. He would contribute to magazine articles all the way through his career, saying that I owe everything to Alma. <laughs> Wrote a poem for a magazine dedicated to her. Oh. <laughs> The, the AFI tribute at the end of his life, where he basically says, you know, I owe everything to four people in my life. You know, the first is a cook, the second is an editor, the third was the best continuity person ever, and their names are Alma Revel, you know, and she got the longest applause of the night. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was That's any... It's a tearjerk at that moment. Really, really yeah. <laughs> even now. Yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was listening to your um, Hitchcock podcast, it was approaching the end of the 20-hour marathon of listening to the programme, and uh, luckily I was chopping onions at that point, <laughs> so I was able to blame it on the onions, but um, yeah, very moving. So just before we move on to talking about Frenzy, I just want to talk about the casting of the film, because it was not a massive star vehicle apart from one actor, the lead. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little about the cast? Well, Ivan Avello is obviously the big name here, um, very much a Welsh Noel Coward. He was a playwright, actor, singer, songwriter. I mean, people know his name now for the, for the Music Award. But apart, apart from that, no one really famous apart from Alma Revel, who pops up as Girl on Wireless. And Another cameo. Yeah, and Hitchcock himself pops up in a newspaper office. Back of his head, isn't it, his yeah. cameo? It looks very harassed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 45 years later, 
he's done the odd thing in between times. Yeah, he's very been, obscure career. Yeah, uh, sank without trace for 45 years, <laughs> and then came back, back to England to do Frenzy. Mm. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about Frenzy, and then I just want to ask you about the, um, the context of that in his life. So the film follows the police's attempts to try and find a necktie murderer who's been raping and murdering women all over London. Um, and their investigation centres around Richard Blaney, who's an ex-RAF officer. Uh, and it's set in and around the Covent Garden area. And it, the story basically is uh, a thriller set around Blaney's attempts to try and prove himself innocent, or is he? And the police's attempts to try and find out who's really behind the killings. And Covent Garden, so that's our justification for mm-hmm. it being, because it's yeah. near It feels Soho. like Soho. It feel, yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm going to say it's Soho. I don't, there you go. I've called it Soho. Oh, you are the master of London. I know. Um, <laughs> so obviously this is the other end of his life, the other end, mm. the other end of his career from The Lodger. And he's, he's been the most famous film director in the world, Easily. I would have thought. Easily the most influential film yeah. director of the 20th century. But is he failing? Is, this, is he declining years? The thing about Hitchcock is that he began with a bang, you know, really came into the thriller genre with The Lodger and then the five thrillers between 35 and 39. Spent 39 to 72 constantly trying to push himself. And, you know, look what I can do all the time. Uh, you can see that from the techniques in his films. Amazing work with the biggest stars in the world. But you could argue that his peak was psycho and then The Birds and then after that you get this slow, not decline, but lack of invention from the films. So he was always trying to push the envelope and he wanted to prove to the studios and to the world that he could still bring the audiences in, even though he's in his 60s at the time and many are saying, settle down, you know, why don't you retire, why don't you mentor, why don't you make quieter films? He, he always just said to everyone, no, I don't want to do that, I want to push the, push the envelope still. He tried to get a project off the ground called Kaleidoscope, which was a very brutal story set around a serial killer. And and it was a very graphic, very hardcore film for someone of his, shall we say, time of life to be attempting. And I think by then his studio Universal were kind of thinking, you're our treasure. We don't want you making a film like this. It would spoil your brand. So they refused him, and it was a very, it was a very hard thing for him to take. The compromise was Frenzy, uh, which came a, a few years later, and he, which required an incredible amount of work. It was based on a, a book by uh, Arthur Laburn called Goodbye Piccadilly, Farewell at the Square. And um, I think that's basically how he got it past Universal in the end. He said it's based on a book, people know what to expect. And he, um, he employed the services of Anthony Schaffer, a very respected playwright at the time. And uh, they, they managed to get this story to the screen in the end. And you can see from when you watch it these days, it, it's like um, it's a very much an old film with new stuff in it. And, and, and what I mean by that is that when you look at the people talking to each other throughout the film, the dialogue, the patterns of dialogue are very rat-a-tat-tat. They're very 1930s and 40s. You don't get any overlapping dialogue. Let us rejoice that pollution will soon be banished from the waters of this river and that there will soon be no foreign... Look! What is it? It's a woman! What's up around her neck? She's been strangled. Looks like a tie. Yes, it's a tie, all right. Another necktie murder. Please come away from here, Sir George. 
It's another necktie murder. What did the police think about it? That's what I'd like to know. Why can't they find him? He's a regular Jack the Ripper. Not in your life. He used to carve him up. Sent a bird's kidney to Scotland Yard once, wrapped in a bit of violet writing paper. That'll do, Herb. I'm quite sure the lady doesn't want to hear any more about it. Or was it a bit of a liver? I say, it's not my club tie, is it? The film has only really has one horrifying scene of violence, a physical attack scene earlier on, which is horrifying, but not not titillating, really. And, I, and given Hitchcock's reputation for being slightly leery with the camera, I would have expected him to be a bit more titillating with the rape. He does a close-up where the which you call Barbara Lee Hunt. He's ripped a dress and he's pulled down a bra on one side, which is in close-up, so that's full, that's quite graphic. And she quite kind of discreetly covers herself up again. And I, th- I would have imagined Hitchcock would have been a bit more explicit. So you know, it, although the, although the violence is quite horrifying, and the attack of Barry Foster, who is brilliant in the role as the as a uh, Bob, Bob Rusk. Bob Rusk. I would say that, don't you feel though, when you're watching that, that because she pulls herself up, she's trying to cover herself up again. I think that's one of the one of the main, one of the rare flashes of a really well-developed character in that script, where um, he's the animal, but she's trying to stay dignified. You know, yeah. all the way through, she's like, you know, okay, this is going to happen but leave me some dignity. You know? Don't rip uh, my dress. Exactly. Don't, please don't leave my I'll take it off if you yeah. want me to. You know, but he's, he's all like, you know, no, I need to rip it. That's part of it. I want to I expose you. That's part of my kick. I like you screaming. And I like it when you, you're being hurt. I like it when you don't like it, basically. And, and she, throughout the whole ordeal, tries to stay ladylike. She pulls herself up. She that that up, actually know. adds to the horror of it. it the fact does. that she's not screaming and fighting and is... I, I just, it's just it's just skin crawling. The, the reason that scene is so skin crawling is because it feels so real. It's mm. like you're watching someone's humanity being taken away. Yeah. As he's tearing her dress, she's like, oh, she can't believe it's happening, but she knows she's going to have to go through it. Um, it's a really brilliant scene. Yeah. It's the most repellent scene in his entire career. Yeah. Um, and it's tough to watch even today. Let, let me answer the telephone. If you don't, the caller will come right here in person. I told you. I locked the outer door. We won't be disturbed. Oh, God. Leave me alone. All right. All right, I won't struggle. Oh, but I like you to struggle. A lot of women like to struggle. Please, don't tear my dress. I'll take it off if you like. Be afraid for the terror by night. Lovely. Nor for the arrow which flies by day. Lovely. Nor for the pestilence which walketh in darkness. Lovely. Nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. Lovely. And Barry Foster, I mean, I think it's a, a, an amazing performance by him, but apparently that it ruined his career. It did, yeah. Totally stereotyped him. The critics loved it, but unfortunately, you know, it was a star-making turn for Barry Foster, but it also defined much of the public's feeling towards him because he's such a repellent character. But, but I think it's not just because the way he acts either, it's his whole look. The blonde hair stands out, the pin. Yeah, the, the pin, yeah. You know, he's very much a dandy. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing performance. It looks like a 70s film, mm-hmm. 
but it's feels in colour, but it feels like yeah. a Hitchcock film. It feels like a Hitchcock. It feels very much like a forties Hitchcock thriller. Yeah. But with real nasty parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things that makes it a very Hitchcock film, mm. apart from the kind of uh, you talk about the ratatat dialogue, mm. the humour that runs all mm. the way through. Oh it, my god! The, the, the hilarious. Um, I think Friends is his funniest film. Very, very funny, and it's a feat to be able to pull off mm. a film. It's, it's a very, very dark film, but it has all that stuff about the um, the copper who's returning home to oh my his god, dreadful wife. Uh, do you know what? I, I had to edit those scenes together for my dad, and we would sit just watch those scenes back to back back to back just absolutely wrong I don't think there's any other director who really gets that tone so perfect and it begins the whole kind of yeah. dissatisfied <laughs> policeman uh, food trope with his oh it opens with his he's sitting at his desk in his office eating a full English breakfast not just eating it yeah. he is hoovering yeah, that. And he goes on for ages and ages he's just like just eating like dipping the sausages in the egg and yeah, like I thought the same thing last night I was thinking is anyone going to say anything and, and it's like a sort of the, the mother's pride with margarine on and, and then his, his colleague is just sitting watching him sort of leaning over slightly as well watching him and he, and he holds that that bit for about must about a minute he's just <laughs> watching a guy eating a breakfast and it turns out it's because his wife is doing this um, French cookery course oh, and he's um, so funny and when he gets fed the um, the soup de poisson and it's not yeah. a fish soup it's got, it's got like bits of crab it's in it it's literally got shells in yeah. there and when he starts picking the gristle yeah. out his mouth, and then, it's just the timing of the scene like she turns around and at that moment he like spits it straight back into the yeah, pot there's a fantastic spit he does where he kind of he sort of cups his hand around his mouth and it's gobs like his spit. <laughs> yeah I just want to talk a little bit about the parallels mm. between the two films because torturously we are sitting <laughs> by the by river, the river Thames yeah. because and only because both of these films open with the discovery of a, a murdered woman by the river. My question to you, has it been worth it to sit under these helicopters just to make that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. I totally feel like I'm at a murder scene. So, so that's one parallel. Uh, there's the, the fact that it's a serial killer. It's more, more the themes it's, of it's the It's more the tone as well. Mm. It feels like, and it just feels very... London. It's so, very rooted in its location. They both very much feel like British films. You know, he made British films in inverted commas while he was in Hollywood. Like Suspicion is that you know set in Britain. It doesn't feel like a British film. Yeah. But The Lodger and Frenzy, you you don't even need any context at all. You don't even need to know they're Hitchcock, but you can tell that you can tell they're British. Is it his most British film? Is he? Is he? He's not bringing Hollywood to London, is he? No. I think I think um, Hitchcock's British sense of humour was always trying to come out in um, his American films. Trouble with Harry, I think, is is it's okay. It would have worked better as a British film if it was set in the New Forest with Joyce Grenfell. That film would have been fantastic. Yeah. But because it's it's not, you just don't buy it from the beginning. But as you say, with Frenzy, that's just nailed. It's almost like he came home and went, "Great, the gloves are off. I can finally tell these jokes, and people will understand them." Yeah. It's gone back to his hometown to make this triumphant film. Yeah. That must have been really significant in his life to well, be, well, to think be about leaving Hollywood behind. And when you talk, well, we said about being bookend for his career. You think about The Lodger being the first real bookend of that career. It's a serial killer drama set in London, filmed in London. Hitchcock goes all the way back to London to film another serial killer drama. Hitchcock was very much part of that um, scene when he was growing up as well. Yeah. Um, when he was a child, his, his dad owned a shop and 
he used to spend hours and hours and hours every day at Covent Garden. He knew all the fruit sellers, the market traders. And in fact, when he went back to Film Frenzy in Covent Garden, um, one, of the, one of the market traders recognized him. And this guy was like in his 90s at the time. And, he, and he, he pulled Hitchcock aside and said, I remember you. I remember your dad. I remember the stall you used to have. I remember the fruit you used to buy. Do you remember me? And Hitchcock all of a sudden came to life. It was like he'd been taken back in time. And, um, and he, he said, I can't work today. I'm sorry. I'm going to spend some time with this gentleman. And went off with him and just talked about his youth, the old times. It must have been quite a transformative experience. It also unfortunately came at the end of his health and at a time when Alma's health wasn't doing too well. She actually suffered a stroke while they were filming and it, I think he was very personally involved in every single part of this film, seeing his childhood and how it had changed uh, in the intervening years. Plus, you know, being aware, very much aware of his own mortality. Here he was back in England making a thriller um, but he just wasn't, he didn't have the same energy anymore, didn't have the same health levels anymore. It must have been kind of a religious experience for him in a way. So you've seen every Hitchcock film that exists, is that true? There's nothing, nothing you haven't seen? Yeah, well, apart from the lost ones, yeah. So where do the Lodger and Frenzy stand in your in your? I'd say Lodger is at the, at the end of the top ten, I would say. I, I really like the Lodger. It's one of the films that I never reach for, but if I watch it, I think, God, God, it's so good, it's so good. Um, Frenzy, I would say, is in the top 20. Um, but yeah, The Lodger, I, I would urge people if they haven't seen it, don't be put off by the fact there's a silent film. It's so watchable. And Frenzy, is it just has to be seen to be believed. You won't believe how nasty Hitchcock could get, but also how hilarious at the same time. It is quite an anomaly among his canon. Everyone knows about the more famous of his films, and everyone loves the 50s stuff, let's be honest. But you really need to go for the bookmarks as well, because you can see the influence of all of his films in both of those they're the perfect example of how funny and how dark he could be at the same time and don't show frenzy to your kids definitely not adam is the creator of three podcasts the official talking pictures tv podcast attaboy clarence and the truly epic and groundbreaking secret history of hollywood adam's back catalog of secret history podcasts including the hitchcock epic is now housed on audible just visit audible.co.uk and search for it there. Adam's website, where you can find his more recent work, can be found at attaboyclarence.com. His Twitter handle is at audiojoe. Aidan McManus's website is flipsidelondontours.com, where you'll find all the details of his Soho walking tours, including those about punk rock and David Bowie, as well as other tours of West London. Please also check out Aiden's radio show, Flipside London Radio, over on PortobelloRadio.com. Aiden is also the curator of a season of Soho set films called Soho A Go-Go at the Regent Street Cinema. Producer Dom and special guest Melanie Williams will both be giving a very special Q&A at the festival, so do head over to RegentStreetCinema.com for full details and dates. All of these links can be also found on the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.wordpress.com. Do you have a favourite Soho film? We'd love to hear from you. You can email your suggestions to us here at SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at BytesSoho. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Adrian Smith from Sussex University, known on Twitter also as at Retro Ramblings, about the 1966 exploitation film Secrets of a Windmill Girl. 
The film stars a young Pauline Collins as a girl who wants nothing more than the fame, glitz, glamour and gore on stage at the Windmill Theatre. We'll also take our seats at the screening of an award-winning documentary, Tales from Tin Pan Alley, and talk to its producer, Henry Scott Irvine, about the sad decline of Denmark Street. Until next time, from me, Jing Yang, and my producer, Dom Delagi, bye for now. Bye.